changemakers, peace builders, human rights defenders, and youth activists. To all of you who are listening, a very warm welcome. This is the Change Rebels podcast, the podcast that brings you stories from the changemakers at the front line of youth peace and security. This is Emily Vesky. In this episode, we get closer to Syria as it's coming close to a near decade of war. What does the reality for children and youth actually look like here? We meet with Juliette Tuma, based in Amman, Jordan. She's the regional chief of communications for the MENA region, the Middle East and the North Africa region at UNICEF, the United Nations Children Fund. And we ask what it means to actually take special consideration to age in humanitarian assistance programming. What happens to terrorists and their children in the whole camp? And we find out if young peace builders in Syria should carry any hope for a peaceful resolution. I think there's definitely more to be done. And I think that Sweden has a lot of work to do on the rights of refugees in general. And in particular when it comes to LGBTQI refugees. But before this, uh, we met together with other three uh, representatives of other youth organizations in the hotel for one hour meeting. And it was the same day when uh, Sweden decided not to call us Russland, but uh, Belarus. So I was probably the first person to know this news. And I get to know that she used to be a secretary general of the LSU as well, as well as the previous minister of foreign affairs. It's a difficult question, like, you can always look back on it and be like, we should have done this earlier and we should have done this and that, but I do think that the sanctions should be proper. In the United Nations Resolution 2250 on youth, peace and security, youth is defined as persons between 18 and 30. This has been somewhat confusing to civil society as most youth organization covers a much larger span of ages. In Sweden, for example, youth organizations tend to have members between the age of 6 and 30. And socially, of course, there are many contexts when you might transit between the cultural understanding of what it means to be a child, be a youth or be an adult inside or outside that bracket 18 to 30. Also, in the UN system, it seems, at least in the beginning, that there were some difficulty mainstreaming the resolution, partly because of its age division. And I think this is still somewhat true. Um, For example, what UN organization is actually responsible for implementing the youth peace and security agenda. There is no UN youth entity like UNICEF for children or UN women for women. And now five years later in the Secretary General Antonio Guterres first report on the implementation of the youth peace and security agenda, he chooses to use the age bracket 10 to 24. Can you talk us through how UNICEF understands its role in the implementation of the youth peace and security agenda and how the agenda interlinks your mandate to the Convention of Children's Rights. Right, so we uh, at uh, UNICEF, uh, we have a mandate uh, to work uh, with what we call adolescents uh, and young people. 
And uh, this is a, we have a mandate uh, to cover uh, every child until the age of 18. So uh, this is what we focus on. And uh, we have um, youth programs that are focused and that are designed around uh, youth empowerment, youth inclusion, including providing technical skills, uh, especially to young people who were forced to leave uh, school at a younger age, which I'm sure we can talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Mm -hmm. And um, what does it mean to take special consideration to youth when you are planning and prioritizing in your response to a humanitarian crisis as UNICEF? Yeah, so for us, uh, there are a number of uh, programs that um, have been put in place uh, to support uh, young people uh, in, in this region. And uh, when we first uh, start uh, humanitarian planning at the onset of any crisis, we focus uh, first and foremost on the life-saving assistance that we give to families and children in need. So we mobilize things like uh, drinking water, like hygiene kits, uh, like working on vaccines and vaccination campaign, like working on uh, nutrition supplies, uh, like uh, giving increasingly because of the time of COVID, uh, giving out uh, masks and gloves uh, and hand sanitizer. So at the onset of every humanitarian crisis, this is really what we focus on because, you know, normally the, the needs are in these areas and we have to respond to those at the beginning of uh, any humanitarian crisis. And we have many of those, uh, sadly, here in this region, from Yemen to Syria to Libya to Sudan uh, to Palestine to recently uh, what we had in Lebanon as a result of the blast. So they are ongoing and the needs uh, are, are immense. However, as uh, these uh, crises uh, go on, uh, we, of course, start working on other areas that are equally important, including education, including psychological support, including to young people, but also youth programs that um, uh, focus mainly on uh, youth empowerment and giving uh, voices to, to, to the young people. We have uh, a platform called uh, Voices of Youth that is uh, here in the region, I would say safely one of the few outlets uh, in the region for young people to express their opinions uh, and to write about their issues, their challenges, but also the positive things that happen to, to them, ask questions, uh, interact with other young people from, from the region. So when it comes to the difference between a child approach and a youth approach, would you, in very basic terms, say, for example, that a child approach is more of a mandate of protection, while a youth approach is more of a mandate of empowerment? Would that be correct to you? I think protection is there across the board. Uh, whether it's with uh, with a a child, whether it's with a young person, whether it's with a woman, with a man, protection is part and parcel of uh, of uh, of dignity and of uh, daily life, and it should be there for any human being on this planet. However, sadly, because of uh, 
uh, conflicts uh, because of poverty, because of um, inequities around the world. Um, we see the protection of human beings being violated day in and day out. And uh, that is uh, quite, a, quite a vast uh, topic. When it comes to, to young people, I think it also goes uh, in our programming, it goes beyond the, uh, giving voice to, to young people, which I think is very important. Nevertheless, there are a number of programs that we roll out across this uh, region, across the Middle East and North Africa, um, where it's a skills-based programming. So, for example, introducing life skills to young people, especially those who were forced out of school uh, for multiple reasons. It could be conflict, it could be poverty, it could be uh, the fact that they had to become the, the, the bread owners of family and so were pushed into child labor for a variety of reasons. And so UNICEF runs these life skills programs that, that are in support of young people to prepare them for uh, when they become adults and the likelihood of them, them getting jobs with, uh, in, in, in the market become a bit higher. So they get skills uh, like uh, carpentry or working uh, as a hairdressers. Of course, this is in addition to writing and reading the basic skills to have that as well. A solution solving, creative uh, arts, like for example, editing videos, building websites, all those things are uh, life skills. And, uh, and uh, you know, there is a bit of a debate on whether we call them soft skills or whether we call them hard skills. To me, they are skills. Uh, and to UNICEF, they are skills. And so every person, every human being, every child, every woman, every, uh, every person around the world needs to have the basic skills to, to be able to um, be included in the, in the job market afterwards. And uh, sadly, here in this region, because we have uh, an education crisis and uh, uh, because we have uh, an unemployment crisis, especially among young people, the region is in fact home to the highest rates of unemployment among young people in the world. And, uh, and so these life skills programs that UNICEF and other organizations organizations oversee and undertake are likely to help young people to find jobs in, in, the, in, the, in the market. However, because of COVID, we are likely to see these numbers further increase, whether we're talking about unemployment or about uh, children who are out of school or about uh, poverty. There is a lot of things to take into consideration in this region. The conflict in Syria is entering its 10th year. Some hope was raised as ice appeared to have been broken up and ceasefire was put in place. And even the Iranian ambassador to Syria even began to host these meetings on the future of tourism in Syria. But in fact, deaths keep rising. But in fact, the number of deaths keep rising. And the COVID pandemic is putting the already vulnerable people in an even more dire situation, while humanitarian response teams are being attacked frequently by fighting parties. Just this week, the Security Council briefing reports that there are reports of kidnappings and targeted attacks almost on a daily basis in southern Syria. Some refugee camps have not been reached in over a year, 
and explosive hazards continue to claim lives across the country. You, as the communications chief of the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa, what, what can you tell us about the situation in Syria and their prospects of change and their prospects of an end to the violence? Yeah, so the war in Syria is far, far from over. Um, we have seen a lull in violence. Uh, we have seen um, commitment to the ceasefire, but uh, day in and day out, uh, there continue to be um, violations uh, of uh, a children's rights. Uh, there continue to be killing, uh, maiming, uh, attacks uh, on uh, civilian infrastructure, including schools, uh, clinics, uh, and there continues to be abduction. Uh, so while we have seen uh, a lull uh, in, in the past few months, uh, violence has never stopped and uh, the war uh, is, is far, far from over. There is always hope for the for the future. There is always hope for for peace to come back to Syria. I worked in Syria myself, and I visited Syria many many times since uh, since I worked there in the summer of 2012. And I've seen this uh, beautiful uh, country falling to crumbles in front of uh, our own eyes. Driving uh, for kilometers on end uh, with uh, this uh, beautiful uh, city uh, totally destroyed. Uh, and uh, this was as uh, a result of uh, the heavy, heavy fighting that uh, the city has endured uh, during, uh, during the war. And uh, I think there is always hope. That there is always uh, a chance for peace to return and for people to reconcile with uh, what they have seen and what they have lived through. It has been way too long. It has been one decade almost of war, of displacement. Um, for us at UNICEF, uh, we know that nearly 6 million children uh, were born into the war since uh, the war began, uh, whether they were born in neighboring countries or whether they were born inside Syria, but uh, most of these children know nothing but war, but displacement. They grew up as refugees, and so this is not a normal way for a child to, to, to be and to grow up. And uh, a child's place is uh, home, safe, uh, with family, in school, playing with friends, uh, connecting with their countries, learning about their countries and belonging to their countries. So we do hope that people uh, who were forced to leave would eventually be able to go back home. We're talking about uh, one of the largest displacements in, re in recent history. When you look at the numbers, uh, whether it's uh, people who fled to neighboring countries uh, like Lebanon, like Jordan, where I am today, like Turkey, Egypt, northern Iraq, this is 5.6 million refugees, uh, half of them are children. This number does not include uh, those Syrians who went beyond this region, whether it's Europe or North America or Australia or other points of the world. And this number also does not include the six million people who were forced to leave their homes inside Syria. So when we talk about displacement figures, it's, uh, it's uh, no surprise that it's uh, an exodus, really, of, uh, of people who were forced to leave the safety of their homes and uh, flee sometimes 
walk uh, for days on end before reaching safety. Some uh, times we had uh, children who were forced uh, to flee um, their places of safety six or seven times in a row before they arrived to a place like Jordan. Uh, whether it was inside Syria, one displacement after the other, or whether to cross the border. Some stories, especially at the peak of the crisis, were harrowing of children who were telling us that they were walking for days, sometimes barefoot, uh, sometimes just with sandals when it was raining. I mean, Syria really is, is, a, is a harrowing story, is a, is a story of a heartbreak, is a story of a people who uh, were living a normal life and then suddenly they woke up uh, to, to be uh, war refugees or asylum seekers or displaced in their own uh, countries, uh, sometimes displaced uh, just one street away and can't go and, and see their, uh, their homes. But it's also a story of hope. Because when you see the perseverance of, uh, of the Syrian people, when you see the determination to continue to learn, to educate their children, to do everything possible so that their child gets an education, so that they themselves find jobs, uh, entrepreneurships uh, amongst Syrian people, uh, they always find little projects to sell something, to cook something, um, to organize gatherings, uh, to discuss things, to come up with their music, with arts, with culture. They are a fantastic nation. And uh, really, we hope uh, that for the sake of their children, that uh, peace will finally come back to Syria, that the guns will eventually be put down. It's been almost a decade, and that's way, way too long. It's a lifetime. Mm. And you are mentioning that, in fact, half of these refugees are children and even more if you add the youth above the age of 18. What would you describe or, or say is special with the children and youth situation in Syria compared to other contexts? Well, they have seen uh, the children and young people in Syria and human beings, I think, in general have seen and have lived through experiences that no human being should live through. Uh, whether it was a, a bombing, whether it was uh, attacks, uh, whether it was displacement, uh, whether it was a, a uh, schools closing because of the violence, uh, whether it was a kidnapping of loved ones, uh, you name it, you name it. I mean, the list of atrocities uh, are, uh, are just uh, huge. Uh, and so uh, the experiences and with that, uh, the level of uh, trauma and uh, the impact on uh, young people's uh, mental health is, is immense. And uh, for us at UNICEF, uh, one of the, the key things uh, or key tools uh, to, to tackle uh, mental health impact is what we call uh, psychosocial support uh, to children and to young people. And this is uh, an area of our work where it has been part and parcel of our emergency response uh, to the Syria crisis. So, for example, um, if you go to a refugee camp uh, here in Jordan, you have uh, what we call a child-friendly space. And there is a program that uh, Jordan uh, uh, is running through UNICEF and through through our partners, it's called Makani, My Place, uh, where children can go 
to a safe place where they can play, where they can draw, where they can do sports, where they can meet friends, and where they can uh, also speak to child protection specialists. And uh, those uh, child protection specialists assess the need to refer uh, the, the child or the young person to a more specialized psychological treatment through psychologists or in some cases psychiatrists. But what we see in these uh, places, because uh, I had uh, the, the honor really to, to accompany the start of these uh, centers, and I would see children who had just crossed the border from uh, Syria. This is in 2013 or 14, when we had a number of, uh, we had an influx in fact, of refugees coming here into Jordan. Uh, so the children would come into these, these spaces. It would be their respite time. Uh, they would be children again. They would be painting and they would be singing and they would be uh, laughing and they would play football and whatnot. And in particular, the issue of drawing is uh, an amazing indication of the child's well-being and mental health. We've seen children who at the beginning of the crisis would come to these uh, Makani uh, spaces and would use uh, very dark colors uh, like uh, black, like brown, like red. Um, they would paint their bodies, um, they would paint bombs or uh, shooting or soldiers. But as the days went by gradually, and thanks to the help that these children received, children would start using lighter colors and they would use the pink, they would use the yellow, they'd use the green, they start painting things that children normally would paint. So, you know, the house, uh, the promenade on the beach, uh, going into a garden and picking up some flowers, the grandma, the friends, the school, all of that. So really these, uh, these um, activities uh, that might sound like part of uh, a normal daily life of children, when we're talking about war children, they could really save lives. And obviously this past year has been even more different because of the pandemic. It has changed things for people on the ground and for you personally, how you conduct your work. When we began this recording, you were wearing a face mask. There are these like small things that have been the source for huge discussions in the Northern Hemisphere. But how has the pandemic actually hit the people on the ground and affected your operations? So to, to give you an idea, of course, the pandemic has impacted uh, the lives of each and every one of us around the world. I would say it's safe to say to different degrees. It has also most certainly impacted most people who are what we call the most vulnerable families. So whether it's poorest families in the region or the refugees or the internally displaced, certainly the impact has been, been bigger on, on these families. It is safe to say that every single person in, in the world was, was impacted. When it comes to, when it came to our work, UNICEF has never stopped. Um, uh, throughout uh, the pandemic, we've never stopped uh, to uh, deliver a, um, a, what we call a protection, personal protection equipment, which includes uh, masks and gloves and hand sanitizers. We flew in uh, these uh, equipment, this equipment from around uh, the world. Uh, UNICEF manages uh, the biggest humanitarian warehouse in the world where we store uh, all these uh, life-saving supplies, including hygiene kits, uh, including a soap, uh, a detergents, uh, a hand sanitizers. 
and other material. Vaccines, obviously, is, is a huge, huge operation for UNICEF. And so we never stopped. Despite the closure of borders, uh, of airspace, we continue to, uh, to be able either to bring in from outside uh, through special flights or to buy locally, which was uh, also for us here in the region, um, part of our mission really to support local economies. So because the local economies have suffered here. So we bought, for example, masks uh, locally. Uh, we bought hand sanitizers locally and other uh, material soap, for example, we bought locally and we distributed uh, to people uh, in need. And in fact, uh, our work uh, has expanded and we had to do even more than what we were already doing, which was already a lot. So uh, the whole work that uh, we've been uh, pioneering on the uh, information and uh, countering the infodemic, what we call, so sharing reliable, credible information on health measures, uh, encouraging people at the beginning, especially to wash hands, to wear masks, uh, appreciate that people were fatigued and tired, uh, but to continue to find creative ways uh, on the website, on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, everywhere, on the radio, using podcasts like yours, to, to spread the word. And, and this, uh, for us, uh, since COVID, has become really a life-saving intervention, really, uh, for UNICEF, uh, because uh, of the floods, and I'm telling you, the flood of uh, fake news, uh, wrong information that uh, the world has been suffering from. And uh, this is exactly why we call this an infodemic, which is another pandemic, which is the infodemic of uh, fake news and, uh, and wrong information that uh, spread like wildfire in, in, in this region, whether it was through WhatsApp messages that were wrong, whether it's through alleged medical advice. So what we did is we launched a strategy where we did the counter flooding. We flooded the market with credible information, with information that is coming from our health professionals, with information that is friendly for users, including for children themselves, but also for parents. We advanced also from only focusing on the health measures, whereas in the beginning we focused on washing hands, wearing masks, uh, wearing gloves in some, in some parts, uh, and the need to, of course, to be spaced. Uh, so the social spacing was, uh, was really critical. This is in the beginning. Right now we move to, to focus on only areas that are that are now critical, for example, back to school. How do you uh, go back to school in a safe way? Uh, how do you take your children to vaccinate them in, in a safe way? We didn't stop on the other more uh, basic parts. That's always going to be there for as long as we have a COVID-19 in the world, which I think is going to be for a while. Um, but we've advanced in also providing information on other areas of the day-to-day -day lives of people. I um, want to move into a more controversial piece of the youth peace and security puzzle, an important piece, but also maybe a, the most difficult piece. Uh, it's the fifth pillar of uh, the youth peace and security agenda about disengagement and reintegration. ICE or Daesh has on occasion been called one of the most successful youth organizations globally. Its president was not older than 40. Uh, most of its recruits are under the age of 30. Knowing that in the face of evil and extreme violence, it is particularly hard 
to stand by a person's normal moral principles. But it might also be then that it is most important to stand by them. Do you believe that in the dismounting of ice, the charging of the ice fighters and the detainment of them in the Al-Hol camp mostly, that special consideration has been taken to the fighter's age? Well, for us, um, a child is a child, regardless. Um, and a child is a child until the age of 18. And uh, very sadly, the uh, many, many children in this region were forced into uh, the fighting. And uh, Syria is a one of those uh, stories, but we have the story being repeated in places like Libya, in places like Sudan, in places like Yemen, where uh, where child recruitment is widespread. Um, and those children uh, in, in particular deserve uh, the uh, utmost care and the utmost uh, uh, protection uh, because they are children and uh, because uh, uh, they were forced to do things uh, that no child should be forced to do. And uh, there are clear uh, protocols uh, that go in line with the Convention uh, on the Rights of the Child and uh, uh, on integration in society, on making sure that these children get the education they need, but also get the, the uh, mental um, health care that they need and it is their right to, uh, to get. And uh, eventually, in particular to the situation in, in Syria, with regards to your question to the situation in Al-Hol camp, there are also other places uh, where children who are allegedly affiliated with uh, armed groups uh, uh, have been languishing for months, if not years. Uh, it is time for the countries uh, of these children to take responsibility and to repatriate those children back to their country. Uh, and to give them the care and the education and the, the assistance that they need. There is always ways uh, to, to work with the children, to deal with the children, to bring them uh, part of their lost childhood so that they eventually become the adults that the world needs. Um, and they, it is possible, it has been done in many other parts of the world. So we do hope uh, that UNICEF's uh, numerous calls uh, will be heard and that uh, member states uh, who have children in places like Al-Hol, they repatriate their children back to their countries. I believe there is also a bit of a difference here, a more obvious manner to deal with the children who were recruited under the age of 18 and still are under the 18 and therefore still are children. But then you have a group of people who were recruited when they were younger than 18 as children, but now they have reached an age older than 18. And I think it is here that, in concern to these young people, that it becomes more difficult for the public and for the member states of these persons, these individuals, to start thinking about their responsibility and actually taking special consideration to age. W what is your reflection on that? For us at UNICEF, um, Emily, we're focusing on the children, uh, whether they, are, they have fought themselves, uh, according to reports, 
or whether in many, many cases these children have not fought at all or have not been recruited into the fighting. They happen to be the children of fighters. Uh, and this is also reported because uh, it is very hard to verify. And so for us, these are children, regardless of whether they fought or they were recruited into the fighting or they were born into uh, a, the, the fighting to fight their family or to a family or a parent that was associated with armed conflict. For us, the bottom line is that these are children and uh, they need to live their childhood in dignity. They need to be protected. They need to get the the, their rights fulfilled, whether it's health, whether it's education, whether it's, uh, it's, it's shelter. And that is the responsibility of member states. As you mentioned, over 65,000 children from over 60 countries remain specifically in the Al-Hol camp, the most known camp from a Swedish perspective. And, and this is a camp where ICE fighters are detained and they are awaiting trial. These children are kept in these camps in very difficult living situations, often together with possibly a parent. What can you say about their situation and what the international community should do for them? You are saying the international community has to take responsibility, but what do you actually mean by that? Yeah, so member states taking responsibility means very simply to repatriate children and their families at the best interest of the child. So that is one. But until that happens, these children, as you rightly point out, live in Al-Hol, Al-Roj, and other parts of the, uh, of, the, of Northeast Syria in particular. And so until this happens, the, the humanitarian needs are not going to wait. And so we at UNICEF have been providing uh, clean water, we've been providing education, we've been providing life-saving assistance, vaccination campaigns, we have set up uh, these uh, uh, child-friendly spaces uh, similar to uh, the model that we have uh, in Jordan because children's needs will not go away. And so we have to respond to them. And that's exactly where we need to continue to do our work, hand in hand, doing advocacy with member states so that they repatriate children and families back home. Um, but until then, the, there are needs that need to be uh, to be uh, catered to. And so this is why uh, we have never stopped uh, uh, to work in, in Al-Hol and other uh, parts of the northeast of Syria. Uh, we are not alone, however. We have uh, a number of partners who work with us uh, on the ground uh, who deliver uh, humanitarian assistance uh, to families who live uh, in, in Al-Hol. That's not a durable solution. That's not a long-term solution. Uh, what needs to happen is for children to get back home, to, to uh, get uh, the, the attention and the care and the assistance uh, and the psychological care that they need to get uh, education as well and then eventually reintegrate uh, in their societies. If we step back from the operative actions by UNICEF and look up at international policy level and look out globally, we see an increased polarization globally. The number of democracies are decreasing, the global peace index is falling and following the economic crisis and the pandemic, both people and countries are more vulnerable. Xenophobia is spiking and trust in international organizations and trust in international policymaking is decreasing. Many countries did 
also closed their borders due to the pandemic, if they didn't already do that back in 2015 due to the wave of refugees fleeing the war in Syria, basically. Now, as the restrictions during COVID are easing up somewhat, some of these countries appear to consider keeping their borders closed indefinitely. Has the international community changed its position on the protection of children and youth in recent years? And what impact do you believe that these developments will have on the rights and protection of children and youth in the future? So, for UNICEF, our position is clear. We are guided by uh, our mandate. We are guided also by the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which uh, turned 30 at the end of last year. And the the Convention is very clear on what are the rights uh, for children and how important and central, in fact, protection is to our mandate at UNICEF. So for us, uh, in fact, uh, we've not changed. Uh, We've, uh, if anything, we added more attention to the issues of child protection and to the need to to protect the children. However, since the pandemic, it is... uh, highly likely that um, more children are going to become poor as a result of uh, a, the, the pandemic. I mean, our predictions say that uh, by the end of 2020, we might have an additional 8 million children in the region, knowing that already before the pandemic, we had half of the children living in poverty of a sort. And so to add to that another 8 million children, which means that this is in as a direct result of unemployment uh, of of a, of a, their parents as a result of the uh, the economies in in this region uh, suffering it also will have uh, most likely implications on children's education and at the same time this is a, a virus that we're going to have to learn to live with this is exactly why uh, unicef out of uh, out of its uh, I would say attention that we want to give to the whole education area of our work. Uh, we have just produced uh, a guide that we gave to uh, teachers, to parents, to children themselves on how to do education in the time of COVID. A few weeks ago, we have launched a campaign to encourage mothers and fathers and children themselves and caretakers to take their children to be vaccinated. Because if we don't do that, the very big prediction of an additional 51,000 children under the age of five would die by the end of the year only in this region. And so this is something that we're going to have to learn to live with. We have to take all the precautionary measures, but we cannot stop living. And so this is what we will be focusing on in, in the coming weeks and months. And in a way, our, our work has actually expanded to reach as many children as we can in this region, rather than only focusing on those children in need that we used to reach with humanitarian assistance. So if you wish, our audiences, when it comes to information and communication, for example, have expanded massively because we are giving information that is, going, that is made available and that is applicable and hopefully helpful to any family in this region rather than only to a refugee family or a, a, or a displaced family. Finally, we have a few personal questions to you. 
Juliet, you are doing amazing work in a very harsh context. You have several colleagues with you helping you with this. And I'm just wondering what does working in this context, how does it affect you? And has it changed how you view your personal leadership? Well, certainly made me more committed to the issue of children and the children of this region uh, themselves. Uh, it is, uh, like you say, definitely a very, very demanding job. Uh, as you rightly say, uh, I work with uh, with a very big team uh, of, uh, of people who are uh, education specialists, uh, health specialists, mental health specialists, vaccinators, uh, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, creative arts, uh, water people. I mean, UNICEF is an amazing, really, organization that uh, attracts uh, the, the best talent uh, uh, around the world uh, for people who are very committed to serve uh, children and children's needs here in the region and around the globe. And what you also learn is uh, to really be grateful for everything that we have when you are exposed uh, to other people's misery you really appreciate uh, the life uh, that you've uh, you've been having that keeps us going and gives us the energy to never stop uh, and to always be creative and finding solution solutions to reach as many children as possible whether it's with vaccine or with water or with information uh, that is credible, especially lately, or whether with education, or whether it's, uh, it's through our mechanic centers, or whatever it is. Um, UNICEF's work makes a difference for many, many children in this region. And for that, actually, I have to say we are extremely grateful to the people of Sweden and to the government of Sweden, who have been very loyal and good friends to UNICEF's and, uh, UNICEF and UNICEF's mission whether it through the, the very generous support that we continue to receive from the government of Sweden, but also from individuals in Sweden through our national UNICEF committee in, in Sweden. Um, without this uh, support, even if it was a $10 check that the people send every month and have been for years, these are small funds, but these are critical funds uh, that help us continue to assist as many children as possible. And do you have any advice for the young people who are trying to contribute to peace building in Syria and are fighting for peace? Right Absolutely. Now? They are they are the the hope. And people uh, know what they want and know the world that they want uh, to live in. And they come with creative ideas. They come with energy. They come with passion, they're always positive, they want to change. And so that's exactly what needs to continue, in fact, uh, to have this same stamina, the same energy, even when they are a bit older, so to never stop, to um, never stop dreaming, to never stop working towards reaching the dream. International Peace Day is around the corner. This Monday on the 21st of September, what other day would be better for you to get involved and become an actual change rebel yourself. Send us a message, come help us out, sign up for our newsletter. When you sign up for the newsletter at changerebels.org, you get the latest news and extra materials and updates on upcoming youth peace and security events. This 
has been the Change Rebels podcast, recording at the LSU studio on Essingen. And I'm Emily Vesky.